I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And before we do, I just want to share with you just a few things. I'll give you a brief history lesson if you don't mind. Uh, the date was August 24th, 410. This date proves to be one of the most significant days in Western history. It was on this day that the eternal city of Rome was sacked by King Alaric of the Visigoths. How do you like that? Did you know there were Visigoths? The eternal city, as it was called, the internal empire was ravaged by the Visigoth hordes, ending a period of time and safety and security in Rome. The greatest empire that had existed to that day was being ravaged by a bunch of barbarians. In their assault of the eternal city, the Visigoths went about murdering and plundering everything that was in their sight. They only did it for three days. They retreated after the Roman Senate agreed to pay them money um, that they felt they were, uh, they were due. Consequently, the Roman Empire was shaken. The people who thought that the eternal city would never come down, the eternal empire, the people who were Roman citizens, that was something that they held in great pride. <clears throat> Matter of fact, no longer trusting in their government, some of the more wealthy Romans uh, went out to the countryside and established their own fiefdoms because they no longer believed in their government any longer. The final end for the Roman Empire came in the year 476 when German hordes led a rebellion that disposed the emperor Romulus and no Roman leader would ever rise again. Thus was the end of one of the greatest empires in history. Empires rise and empires fall. Kings rise and kings fall, the scriptures tell us. As Christians, we shouldn't be dismayed by what we see going on. This is the way it's always been, right? God causes the rising of kings and the tearing down of kingdoms. And as I said in a prayer, God is sovereign on the throne, but he's not sovereign on the throne just looking. He's sovereign, proactive, and everything is working according to the counsel of his will. The best plans of man will always fail because man inevitably is a creature of sin, born into sin, and will ultimately seek sin to be a solution. Psalm 27 says this, some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we will boast, we will trust in the Lord our God. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Many seek the ruler's favor. But justice for man comes from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.25 reminds us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what's, what's the point of this brief history lesson? I, I think I know where all of you are going. You're going you're gonna to think I'm going to preach a message about what's happening in the current environment, but I'm not. The purpose of this is when we put our faith and trust in anything else, it will crumble. I truly am thankful for the Lord. It took me a while to get to this place, but I am thankful to the Lord 
that all the things that we put our faith and trust in kind of crumbled so that the church and God's people could say, yep, some people boast in chariots, some people boast in horses, some people boast in political process, some people boast in America, but as for us, the church of the elect of God, we will boast, we will trust in the Lord our God. There were many people in the Roman culture who believed that Rome was indestructible. That Rome could never be conquered. Yet Rome had, had to fall because its institutions were indeed corrupted. It corrupted. It rotted from the inside. As I've watched the things transpire, and let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you right now. I have shut the news. I've taken news apps off my phone. I've never been into social media, so that's not a problem for me. But I don't go on any social media, right? But every once in a while, you'll see something, right? But as I've watched this, I thought it was interesting. We see our politicians. This is rather interesting. Have you found the irony in this? The very ones that are calling for defunding the police, the very ones that were calling, saying, we're going to cut military spending and everything else. All of a sudden, the police were great for them when they needed protection. All of a sudden, the military was there for them. There were unlimited resources to pull them from all. So it's okay to defund the police, but as long as it's protecting them. What's worse is that we're seeing this overwhelming degeneracy occur. And this is what I want to address. Because I've heard Christians be shocked into paralysis. And you know what that looks like? That looks like, did you see what happened on the news today? Oh my goodness, did you hear what they're going to do? Oh my goodness, did you hear? Shocked into paralysis. We get overwhelmed. We think that Satan is winning every single battle, every single battle, and the church is being contracted. We have people that are telling us, oh, organized Christianity is failing, it's failing, it's failing. Let me share something with you. The news, the social media, and everything else is designed to do one thing, is to produce fear. And let me tell you somebody else who wants to produce fear in the hearts of believers. Satan. And he is using the institutions of the earth to produce fear. And if we as believers respond in paralysis, if we respond... That because the things we trusted in rather than the God we trusted in, we're going to have big time problems. So let's clear the air. Let's address the white elephant that's in the room. Let me share something with you. You see all the things that are going on. God does indeed have a plan. And I believe that the pandemic, I believe that the change in government, I believe that all the things that we see happening in our world, this rapid degeneracy is shaking the world, but it is doing something else. It is shaking the church. And the church is being weeded out. There are people that love the, the, the concept and the tradition of the church and the church I go to and I go to this church and I go to Sunday is the day I go to church but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday they have nothing to do with the Lord. That is not the faith that is going to take believers through times of persecution, times of trial, times of testing. And these days are upon us. They're not coming, they're here. 
Let me share something else. The culture is coming for the church. I'm on an international prayer call every day. Let me share something. Friday, on the prayer call, prayer request was lifted up for pastors in Canada. Canada! And you know what the prayer request was? Pray for pastor so-and-so. He's accumulated already a million dollars in fines and is facing five years in prison for meeting on Sundays. Another pastor in Canada, pray for my church. On Sunday, the police came in the middle of the meeting, shut the meeting down, warned the people to disperse, told the pastor, if you meet here next week, we're coming back for you, we're going to take you to prison, we're going to take you to jail. Canada, our cousins. Another prayer request came in on Friday, pray for pastor so-and-so. He's decided to take the church underground. Canada. You know what happens in Canada usually comes to the United States. They tend to be on a, perhaps a little bit more liberal end collectively as a government than we may be. But eventually these things filter into the United States. I've entitled this message this week and next week called, O Church, Arise. And the purpose of these messages, how should we arm ourselves in Christ? How are we right now to engage in spiritual war? Because what we see taking place in front of us is indeed a spiritual war. It is a spiritual war. And I know we know the scriptures, and I know we know the verses, and we're going to look at some of those common scriptures that we all know. But we're going to be looking at Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And we are going to be looking in two parts. What does the Lord instruct believers to do when we are faced with these times? Now, I'm going to ask you for something. I'm going to ask that you be praying because we're going to stir the pot a little bit. Probably more so next week than this week. And what I mean that we're going to stir the pot is that whenever you speak about spiritual warfare, guess what happens? The enemy peppers up, right? You get his attention. He got my attention this morning, right? And and some of you received text messages from me this morning saying, please pray for the message this morning because the enemy is, is slick and he likes to discourage. But the church needs to know. We are in days where now being a Christian is going to have a cost with it. Being a Christian is no longer going to be, oh, I go to a women's fellowship on Tuesday night, and I go to this fellowship on Thursday night, and oh, we go roller skating on Friday. No, 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 no. Being a Christian is going to cost us something in this day and age. And rather give you flowery messages and flowery sermons about how things are all great and you're more than conquerors in Christ. It is critical that we understand that we are now at war. Whether you chose to or not, you are at war. You were at war the moment you came to faith in Christ. But that the enemy is turning the heat up. 
How will we stand? It is time now, more than ever, for the church to arise. Not to be shocked, not to sit still, not to moan, not to lament with all the unbelievers about how horrible things are politically and everything else. It is time for Christians to arise now and get into the battle. And let me tell you something, this isn't an exhortation that just comes from me. This is an exhortation that comes from the Word of God. So will you join with me in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. And we're going to read through verse 18. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of, this spiritual, of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit with this in view, and be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Father, as we come before your word, we humble ourselves before your word. We pray, Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The epistle of Ephesians is one of what are called the prison epistles. Paul wrote them from prison on his first imprisonment in Rome, along with Colossians and 1 Timothy. The epistle of Ephesians' main theme, and I want you to understand this, the main theme of the epistle of Ephesians is this, the immeasurable blessings that are found in Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. Paul wrote them to tell them of the immeasurable blessings that are in Christ. For who? For all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The church itself was most started, uh, most likely started by Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. It's amazing. They started a church, those two. Paul then pastored that church for three years. So he pastored the church for three years. When Paul left, Paul sent Timothy. And Timothy took over the church that was now starting to encounter different kinds of problems. And Paul writes him to encourage him. After Timothy leaves, the Apostle John comes in and pastors the church. Man, oh man, is that an all-star cast of preachers? The Apostle Paul, Timothy, and John? As a matter of fact, it's 30 years after the writing of this epistle. It's 30 years. That the Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes a letter 
from Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. And the Lord would tell the church at Ephesus that despite doing all these good things, let me share with you something that you have. You have lost your first love. In chapter 10, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, Paul speaks of God's provision for his children's spiritual battles. In verses 6, verses 10 through 13, he speaks of the believer's warfare. He defines the warfare. In verses 14 through 17, he speaks of the believer's armor. And today we're going to focus first on the believer's warfare. And we're going to see three key principles, three key principles to begin spiritual warfare. Now, I want to put a qualifier out there. A lot of people speak on, uh, speak on spiritual warfare and they pull in all this extraneous stuff. And I want to share something with you. I'm not a guy who sees a demon under every rock. If I trip and fall over my shoelace, it's not that Satan did it, it's because my shoelace was untied and I trip and fell. But that does not negate the spiritual realm. It is real. And as we're going to see in our text today, there are, there is a highly organized strata within the satan satanic realm designed to promote, to propagate, to antagonize, to persecute against the good, against the church, and to expand the sphere of influence of Satan. So we're going to see three key principles here in verses 10 through 12. One, we're going to see that the Lord calls us to be strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord. We are, as Christians, to be strong in the Lord. The second thing, how do we become strong in the Lord? In the strength of His might. We are to be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. And the third element is we are to stand firm against the enemy. So let's take a look at the text, verse 10. Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. His last encouragement to this church is to stand strong. And it's important to note that in Ephesus, Ephesus was the place that Paul caused a riot by the preaching of the gospel. Ephesus was a wicked city. It was the capital of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world, the Greco-Roman goddess, um, Greco goddess Diana, the temple of Artemis. She was a goddess of fertility. She was a goddess of, 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 of love, right? And, and it was that way in the Greek, it was that way in the Roman cultures. And her, her temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world, and her temple also featured temple prostitutes that would come out in the evening and descend upon the town. And they were encouraged for Diana to engage in all kinds of acts of sexual immorality in order to honor the goddess of love, the goddess of fertility. 
And so it's estimated that there were at least a thousand temple prostitutes that would descend upon the town. So if there are a thousand temple prostitutes, I got to tell you, there got to be a lot of people who were in line for business with those temple prostitutes. What am I driving at? The culture that the church sat within was a morally debased culture. It was a pagan culture. And it was filled with all kinds of immorality. It was filled because they were pagan worshiping. It was filled with all kinds of idolatry. All kinds of worship that was abominable unto the Lord. Paul's preaching so disturbed them that we see that the silversmiths who were responsible for crafting idols to the goddess said, hey, if this guy is continuing to be successful, guess what? More people are going to turn away from the, from the goddess worship. They're going to turn to this thing called Christianity. We're going to be out of business. So what did they do? They incited rumors. They incited people to rise up to the point that a great riot occurs. And in Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul is arrested and he's about to be interrogated. I like this term, interrogated by flogging. Meaning we're going we're gonna to whip you first and then we'll see what you're willing to confess. When Paul jumps up and says, wait, can you do this? Can you do this to a Roman citizen? without any charges being filed, and then they stop immediately, right? Because Roman citizens at their time had their right. And the church, and the purpose of this is to tell you that when we read Scripture, when we read these epistles, it's important to know that these epistles, most of these epistles are written to churches that are in hostile, hostile times. The surrounding culture is hostile toward them. And we are in a time now where the surrounding culture is hostile toward us. We do not find ourselves in new territory as believers. We may find ourselves in new territories as Americans, but we do not find ourselves in new territory as believers. 75% of the church lives under persecution. I often think about my brothers and sisters in North Korea, my brothers and sisters in China, my brothers and sisters in India who are suffering at the hands of Hindus that are burning their churches, of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who Boku Haram comes into their villages and kills and destroys and burns their homes. For those who have lost wives, husbands, mothers, fathers, children, relatives, families, their entire church wiped out. Because they stand with Christ. Paul is writing to a church in such a situation. And he gives them two imperatives. An imperative, a good way to think of an imperative is a command or a must do. You got to do it. He gives them two imperatives right here in verse 10. The first one he says here is be strong in the Lord. That word strong there, in dunamis, the definition is to empower. I fill, I power, I give you strength. 
be strong in the Lord. Notice that he didn't say, be strong in yourself. He didn't say, hey, buck up, act like men. He didn't say, hey, you can do this. I believe in you. He said, no, I want you to be strong in the Lord. And let me tell you something. When we as believers turn our eyes to something else for satisfaction, or we trust in something else other than the Lord, we are not strong in the Lord. We are weak in the Lord. Many, many, many believers across this country put their faith, their confidence in a political process or a political party. And now they find themselves sitting back going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? All of this is happening. Well, you know what? Don't put your faith in any man. There's no man that's going to solve the ills of America. There is no political party that's going to make things right. It is only God and God alone. It is only Christ and Christ alone. And let me tell you something. If God so wills that America falls as Rome fell, then it will indeed fall. But the mission of the church does not change. We are still called to proclaim the gospel. We are still called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It doesn't change. Paul's admonition is to stand strong, but he gives you, he gives you the reason how to stand strong. He gives the second imperative. The second imperative is simply this, in the strength of his might. And this word strength denotes an external strength that comes in. Now, if you start thinking about it, stand strong in the Lord. Okay, how do I do that? How do I, as a believer, stand strong in the Lord? That is by entrusting yourself completely by faith to every facet of the Lord. Now let me share something. You will never stand strong in the Lord if the Lord is not the lover of your soul, if the Lord is not your reason for existence, if you find pleasure in anything other than God, anything in, in lieu of God, then you're not going to be strong. Let me share something else. A lot of times that gets pulled out from underneath you. You ever stop and think there was a reason why Jesus said, hey, we like to talk about all the great sayings of Jesus, right? But how about some of the tough sayings of Jesus? Hey, nobody loves father, mother, sister, brother, son or daughter who's worthy of me. There's a tough pill. He who is not with me is against me. What is the Lord saying? What is the first commandment? You know, the, the church needs to be re-educated in the Ten Commandments. You know that? Most people don't know them. What's the first commandment? What's called the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, all of thy soul, all of thy mind. Hear, O church, we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. We have to be awakened from the indifference that we show to God. We have to be awakened from all the distractions that come and, and, and pick at our mind and have us going here, there, and everywhere instead of looking up. 
Church, it's time for the church to awake from the slumber. Hey, soon we're going to hear the voice of the bridegroom saying, the bridegroom cometh. And we're going to be asked to trim our lamps. And guess what? Only the ones that have oil in that lamp will go into that beautiful, beautiful wedding dinner. When the Lord says, when Paul says, be strong in the Lord in the strength of the might, in the strength of his might, the idea is an external power that comes in and strengthens us, and it is supernatural in nature. It comes from an external source. Here's a perfect illustration. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm Isaiah 40, verse 31. Isaiah 40, verse 31. You might know this verse. It's a lot of plaques in the Christian bookstore made with this verse. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain a new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not grow weary. In this text, it is those who wait upon the Lord. They don't have the same strength. What will they gain? They'll gain a new strength. It's an external power that comes into them, that infuses them, that causes them to stand. So new is this strength. That will give them the ability to run and not get tired, to walk and not faint. Why? Because this strength is not from themselves. This strength is from the Lord. Notice the Lord in all caps there. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord will give them this new strength. Paul is declaring these truths because he is sharing them with, he is sharing with them the immeasurable blessings found in Christ for his church. And I'm declaring these very same truths for the same reason. Listen, in these days of uncertainty, in these days of encroaching persecution, in these days of strife, division, when the church is being seen by the culture as divisive, as hateful, not cooperative with the culture, we must, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his mind. And let me share something else with you too. That strength is bolstered when we as a church body are together in unity. When we are esteeming each other as better than ourselves. When we are ministering one to another. That strength is boosted. We must draw upon that external power. We must draw upon that resource given to us by Christ. And I'll share something with you. The days of passive, the days of passive, intellectual, ritualistic Christianity are over. Do you think that the people in North Korea as they sit on the, the Christians in North Korea, as they sit on the persecution, when they talk about the church, they go, oh, I go to that church. 
hmm, it's Sunday. I got to I got to go to church. You know what persecution has shown? It has shown that the church rather than becoming an external thing becomes an internal thing and what they desire the most the people living under persecution is to be with the church this american individualism that we bring to the church that the church is a place i go to only on sunday that i don't have to be concerned with it during the rest of the week that thing will fade away fast as the tidal wave of persecution moves upon the church And we will crave for one another. And we will be searching for one another. And we will be looking for one another to be encouraged by one another. Daniel 11.32, speaking of the Antichrist. This verse has been on my mind for months now. Speaking of the Antichrist says this, And by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Notice what he says by smooth words that the Antichrist is going to be somebody that's going to be really gifted in speech. He's going to really be able to know how to move a crowd. He's not going to use antagonistic words. He's going to use smooth words. Don't we hear those smooth words in our culture today? Love is love. Tolerance. We must tolerate. We celebrate diversity. We hear all those things, right? Those are smooth words, but the undercurrent of those words are the very opposites of of what they declare. But notice what it says about the people of God. It says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. It's the people who what? The people who what? Know about their God? Is that what he's saying? The people who know about God? No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying the people who know their God. They're the ones who are going to display strength. They're the ones that are going to take action. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Let's look at the second principle. We are to stand armored, armored by the Lord. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here's the second imperative. We are to stand armored by the Lord. This armor is given to us by Christ at the new birth. And there are several important points that stand out in this particular scripture. This term, put on, this conveys taking off your civilian clothes and putting on your military clothes. Right? What's the first thing, my brother... My major Mike here could tell us, but the first thing that happens when you go to basic training, once you go through basic training, the first thing they do is confiscate all your, milita- all your civilian clothing. And then for the next few years you're in the military, you have a very defined uniform and you wear that uniform all that time. And that identifies you, whether you're a soldier, you're a Marine, you're an airman, you're in the Navy, it identifies you and that is your identity. You are now a Marine, you are now a soldier. This is what Paul's talking about here. Take off the civilian clothes, take off the civilian clothes. Put on the armor of God. Now, here's a question. Why would Paul encourage believers to put on the armor of God? Why? To sit on the sideline? To watch the other people battle? 
My brother Mike has been deployed. When he's been deployed, they give him multiple equipment. He gets his rifle. He gets his ammunition. He goes and he goes, boom. He knows where he's going. He knows why he's going. But let me tell you, they don't give him a rifle so that I could sit back and watch the game. Our brother Adam, police officer, puts on that uniform every day, puts on all the equipment. What do they do that? Do they, put, they tell him to put the equipment on so he can sit in the office typing emails? No, it's because he's going into the battle. He needs that gun in case something happened. He needs that pepper spray. He needs that taser. He needs all those other different things for when he is going to encounter confrontation he wears that uniform to be clearly identified all that equipment is with him to enable him to encounter the potential troubles that are out there this is the imagery of what paul's talking on put on the armor of god church in america We've had it easy. Let's just call it what it is. We've had it easy. But we've entered a new day. And that new day calls for us to put on the armor of God. And we must accept the fact that God has caused us and called us into war. We have been mobilized. And we have been mobilized and we have been equipped. And next week we're going to take a look at the equipment that God has blessed the people of God with. But we have been equipped to enter into the battle. And this is not optional. This is something that becomes mandatory. This is an imperative. I want you to hear the words of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says this, To be a Christian is to be a warrior. How do you like that one? To be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in the world. It is a battlefield. Neither must he reckon upon the friendship of the world, for that would be enmity against God. His occupation is war. As he puts on the piece, uh, piece by piece of the armor provided for him, he may wisely say to himself, this warns me of danger. This prepares me for warfare. This prophesize opposition this is the day we're in folks dressing for war we must awaken to the fact that the government is not our friend we must awaken to the fact that the culture is not our friend we must reconcile to ourselves that the world system the cosmos is not a friend of the church and neither is there room for compromise. None. There's no room for compromise. As a result, we have to put on the armor of God. We must get ready for battle. If we have not done so already, we are at war. But with whom are we at war with? Verse 12 is going to tell us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
We are in war, in a spiritual war. And you notice in verse 11, he tells us not only to put on the armor of God, but he says that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. That word, stand firm, that gives the imagery of a military unit that is not giving ground. The defensive line is not moving. The enemy is attacking, but the enemy is being repelled because the defensive line is not moving. You understand something? As the church of Jesus Christ, we not only go on the offensive, but we also hold the line for the gospel. And we will not cheapen the gospel. And we will not shrink from the gospel. We hold the line for the gospel. We stand in the truth that was once and for all delivered to us from the saints of all age. We declare that there is salvation in Christ and Christ alone and there is no other. We declare that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. We proclaim what the saints of old have proclaimed. We believe in a sovereign God. We believe in a God who is above all men. We believe in a God who all things work together for His glory and for His name. We stand in truth. We believe this word. We hold to this word. We don't shrink from this word. No matter what they may say, we're living in a day and age where people are accumulating to themselves Teachers, itch my ears, scratch my ears, tell me about the latest fad, tell me about the hocus pocus that you could do. Oh, make this happen, make that happen. We call them signs and wonders, and they're demonic things, they're things that are not even of God, and yet people are flooding here and people are flooding there to see a trick, and they're being robbed from the truth. This is the truth. And so we hold the line. And I can tell you from personal experience, when you hold the line, when you hold the doctrine, it costs you. It costs you. We are to stand firm. We're to stand firm, and he says it at the end, against the schemes, or as the KJV puts it, against the wiles of the enemy or the wiles of the devil. And that word denotes trickery, schemes, methods used for deceiving. You see the way Satan works? He's developing constantly methods and schemes and looking at ways to manipulate. And you know what? We see many that are rejecting the gospel. Many that are falling to the ploy of the world. Many who are buying empty philosophies of men rather than the truth of God. This is the day we're living in, folks. Spurgeon said this, the apostle, speaking of the apostle Paul, speaks of withstanding as well as standing. We are not merely to defend, but also to assail. It is not enough that you are not conquered. You have to go out and conquer. And hence we find that we are to take not only a helmet to protect the head, but also a sword, which is to annoy the foe. Today we see a world that is rife with this type of warfare. Division, anger, the rise of suicide. You know, suicide's been up 
600% since COVID came out. Teen suicide, that has been rising. Children's suicide, as early as eight years old, has been rising exponentially over the last four or five years before the pandemic. We see a world that is just torn apart. You notice the convoluted logic of the world that's out there? Wrong is right, right is wrong. These are all schemes that are employed by the enemy. Unfortunately, we see in the church world the same thing. Divisions by the hundred. Church splits by the hundred. Old versus new, young versus old, doctrinal division, lack of unity. They all give testimony to the schemes of the enemy in being divisive and breaking up against the church. Ephesians 4.22, if you go over to Ephesians chapter 4 real quick. In response to this, the Apostle Paul says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. As we come together in the church, we come together in unity. We put aside the old ways, all the power hungry, uh, all the power grabbing, all the other different things. We lay that aside and we put on the new self that has been created in Christ Jesus. You know this, Romans 12, 2, right? Therefore be ye transformed. Do not be conformed with this world, but be ye transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We are not to be as the world. We are to be transformed. Kingdom citizens living our days for the glory of God. Do you think about that daily? Do you think about how do I live today for the glory of God? And we stand not in our own strength, but in the strength of his might. Whose might? Our captain. Our shield. Our fortress. Our savior and our king. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The third element. We're to stand firm against the enemy. I shared with you in verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces. It's very sad to see that many in the church don't even recognize, they couldn't even tell you who the enemy is. They don't recognize the enemy. Paul tells us clearly in this text that those in whom we are warring with are not flesh and blood. He makes it very clear, this is not a visible army. This is not an earthly kingdom. Here in verse 12, he tells us the order and the demonic and satanic forces that believers war against. And it's important to understand this. We are warring against a highly organized kingdom of darkness. Highly organized. 
Take a look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There, he is not saying all the same thing. Let's break those down. These aren't, by the way, these aren't little entities that go boo in the night and they make the lamp shake. And You ever see these shows, Paranoial, Paranormal, caught on video? And all these guys that, you know, all, by, by the way, does it disturb you that our nation is so interested in the occult? It disturbs me. Take a look at how many shows deal with the occult, either in fiction or in fact. By the way, that is the typical sign of, an, of a nation that has moved, has moved far from God. When the occult is exalted. When police go to soothsayers, psychics, to help solve a murder. But look at what the Apostle Paul is saying here. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, principalities, as the KJV refers to it. And this refers to special creatures such as angels or demons. Right? Because the demons were fallen angels. Right? So this refers to angels or demons, but it's clearly in the context here is not referring to angelic heavenly beings. So we could draw the conclusion here that this word rulers or principalities is referring clearly to demonic forces. And by the way, let me share something with you. They are indeed real. So he says here, he says first of all, it's against rulers. It's against principalities. Satan in Ephesians 2.2, you don't have to turn there, but uh, Paul, uh, Satan in Ephesians 2.2 is referred to who? The prince of the power of the air. Roaming about these demonic entities. So there's one strata within the satanic world. The second one, Against powers, against world forces. This word power is exousia. This carries a sense of authority, meaning these are entities that have been empowered with certain authorities. And this represents another. Next week we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. Represents another level. But I want to call your attention to the third one. World forces of this darkness. Hmm. This is an interesting, this is an interesting one. This is denoting the world rulers of the age. How Satan uses rulers, now, presidents, prime ministers, kings, whatever it is, how Satan uses them for the advancement of evil and the advancement of his agenda. Here, I'll make it real clear. Satan is influencing these godless leaders to accelerate his plan and his purposes in the world. You see this all throughout Scripture. So in actuality, these unbelieving world leaders, because they cannot hear the voice of God, because they're unbelievers, but they can hear the voice 
of demonic messengers. Now, you say, you're out of your mind. Right? But tell me you don't see that happening in the world today. How do you explain the atrocities that continue to develop in the 21st century? How do you explain things like the Holocaust? How do you explain Pol Pot in Cambodia? How do you explain Mao's revolution, Chinese revolution, where it's estimated he killed 40 to 60 million people? How do you explain what happens in Russia? Look at the evil of North Korea, China. Look at the evil that is perpetrating our very country. The evil of abortion, teen suicide, adult suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction, child abduction, pedophilia. It almost appears today we're, we're kind of inventing new ways of immorality and sin. All these happening right under the, our nose. And then the last one here, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is thought to be responsible for, this speaks of the whole creative realm. And some people believe that this level represents the most basic, basis, the vilest forms of perversion and things like this that have come before us. This is who we're at war with, folks. Now look, I know this isn't great news. <laughs> I know you're not going to take this message and say, you should listen to my pastor's message from Sunday. I will really encourage you. But folks, we got to wake up. We have to hear these things. The gospel is both the good news of Christ, but it's also that we are in enmity with the world. And I want the church, and the church at large, and whomever hears this, I want the church to realize it's time to wake up. We need to stand strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. We need to be armored in the Lord. We need to be able to, to go against the enemy and take our attack to the enemy. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and there is nothing more powerful on earth than the church of the elect of God. Do you believe that? There is nothing more powerful. I want you to be encouraged. 2 Corinthians 10.4, listen to this. 2 Corinthians 10.4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who shall be against us? Do you believe that? That's a simple question. If God is for us, who shall be against us? Romans 8.37, and all these things. See, a lot of times these are quoted, you know, haphazardly. But Romans 8.37 says this, in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. So 
We are not, listen church, listen to this. We are not fighting for the victory. Do you understand? We are not fighting for the victory. We are fighting in the victory. It's already won. It's already done. It is already secured. Christ has defeated the enemy. He has vanquished the foe. We no longer fight so that we would prevail against Satan. We have prevailed against Satan. But we are fighting in the victory. Next week, we're going to take a look at verses 13 through 18. I'm going to ask you that this week that you be in prayer. As we understand the armor of God. We understand it's proper application to us that we don't go just running around shouting out different words and expecting the enemy to flee but that in God's strength we become the overcomers that God intended us to be what God needs to see from his church in the ensuing days and in the ensuing years of men and women who are totally sold out for Christ unwavering, immovable, always abounding in every good work, rooted and grounded in the Word of God, uncompromising despite the threats that may come against His church. And that we would be such people and that our God would be glorified, exalted, lifted up, and praised. I want to end with this. We sing this song. O church, arise. Listen to what it says. O church, arise. And put your armor on. Hear the voice of Christ your captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong through the strength that Christ has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love. Reaching out to those in darkness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Father, such lofty, lofty subjects, I have difficulty being able to expound to the fullest extent. But Father, as we prayed that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Father, our heart is that if there is anybody here who is outside of Christ, that, Father, Lord God, that they would turn from their sin, turn from trusting whatever else they're trusting, their own righteousness, whatever it may be, false religion, maybe a tradition being in the church, and would throw themselves completely and wholly to the mercy of Christ, trusting the finished work of Christ for their only salvation. May they be saved, O God. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.